Blog Talk Radio. Now, to balance the scale, I'd like to talk about some things that bring us together. Things that point out our similarities instead of our differences. Because that's all you ever hear about in this country is our differences. That's all the media and the politicians are ever talking about, the things that separate us, things that make us different from one another. That's the way the ruling class operates in any society. They try to divide the rest of the people. They keep the lower and the middle classes fighting with each other so that they, the rich, can run off with all the fucking money. Fairly simple thing happens to work. You know anything different, that's what they're going to talk about. Race, religion, ethnic and national background, jobs, income, education, social status, sexuality, anything you can do, keep us fighting with each other so that they can keep going to the bank. You know how I describe the economic and social classes in this country? The upper class keeps all of the money, pays none of the taxes. The middle class pays all of the taxes, does all of the work. The poor are there just to scare the shit out of the middle class. Keep them showing up at those jobs. Hello and welcome to this edition of E-Radio, another episode of my third-party candidate series. Uh, If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to V-Radio. You can check out my uh, archives going all the way back to 2008. Um, Just be aware my political ideology personally has evolved quite a bit in that time. Uh, But I still retained a lot of friends pretty much in every aspect of my political beliefs along the way. Uh, My third-party candidate series is going to feature third-party candidates from all of the major third parties. And I'm going to invite some independents on as well. The point behind it is to offer some alternatives for the presidential election coming up uh, beyond just the mainstream candidates, uh, particularly aimed at perhaps conservatives who don't want to vote for Trump or liberals or progressives who don't, you know, basically will not vote for Biden, provided he does actually get the nomination, if they can keep him on life support until then. Um, And uh, there is a Patreon that I offer for people who want to support my show. I don't really expect anybody to do that with this pandemic going on, but it is there. And if you look in the description for the show, you will also see uh, some places like Facebook, for example, where you can follow the show. And in addition to that, if you make a free blog talk radio account, basically like another social media account, you can participate in the chat room and give me questions during the show. If not, you can reach out. We also reach out to me on Facebook and I will t- happily take your questions if you message me. Um, today, I have another libertarian president, uh, presidential candidate. It is my goal to try to bring on all the libertarian presidential candidates and then perhaps eventually to host the debate between them as they go into their uh, primary process themselves to determine who their nominee will be. And today I get to have uh, presidential candidate Andy Williams Jr. on the show. Welcome, Andy. Oh, I have to add one sec. There we go. Sorry about that, Andy. Go ahead. <laughs> no, hey, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. No problem, Andy. Do me a favor and speak up just a little bit. You're a little quiet. Oh, okay. How about now? That's a little better. better? Yep. So, Andy, okay. the first question that I ask every listener, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, every guest, uh, for the sake of the listeners, is what got you involved in politics? Was there a precipice moment, perhaps, that pushed you to decide, you know what, I don't just want to be watching politics, I want to be involved? <laughs> yeah, um, it started back in 1994, I was a, a gang member in the Gangster Disciples. Um, 
and there was a new concept that had came out uh, that basically said stop gang banging, drug dealing, because you're you know we're destroying the community. And then there was a 21st century vote that came from the the street organization called Voices of Total Empowerment. That's what the vote stood for. And so I started marching in Chicago, um, would go to meetings, and that was my introduction to politics. Um, But I never, like, was ingrained in it from there. I just got introduced to it. And then sometime in 95, I don't know, I started reading about John F. Kennedy and history. Um, And I had got a letter from the Aurora Elections Commission saying if I didn't give them my new address, I wouldn't be able to vote. But they sent the letter to the apartment I was staying at, and I thought that was, you know, weird. So I, you know, started asking and getting involved, just learning. Um, that was about 95. And then fast forward to 2019, I just felt it was a calling to say, hey, you know, run for president, Andy. You know, all these things you've been through in your life, um, you would be best fit to serve all people in uniting America. And what better way to do it than to run for president? So, I mean, I've known politicians. I mean, I know them. I I worked on campaigns, but I've never really differentiated between a Republican, a Democrat. I just vote for people. That's how I always felt like, hey, I'm going to vote for people. Like Barack Obama, the first time I voted for him, just because, hey, brother, he's cool. Um, that was just the first time. The second time was different. But <laughs> so that's how I got into politics. It was really, 1994, um, there was a new concept um, from the brothers on the streets that needed to change their ways, and that's how I was introduced to it. So, what brought you to the Libertarian Party specifically? I was <clears throat> running as an independent, and a guy named. Um, Joshua Flynn, I, I mean, I had already even did my campaign kickoff, and I saw a post from uh, a guy running for Senate, Illinois, Joshua Flynn, and I reached out to him. This it was a Monday evening in November, um, and he was a libertarian, and I didn't know, hey, I didn't really know libertarians, and talked to him. I read the platform after talking to him, and that night I joined, because it Honestly, my wife had told me before when, you know, we both were just trying to learn about the whole process and everything, and she said, you, who you are lines up with with liberal. And I was like, okay, but I didn't, you know, look into it. And then that's how I got into the Libertarian Party. I just signed up, asked what I needed to do, and became a part of it. Excellent. So, um. Andy, you know, obviously over the course of, you know, just looking at, um, you know, your profile and, and everything, um, I know one of the things that you that you said actually, and it's not on my regular list, but was criminal justice per, um, reform uh, might have been a serious motive for you. Do you, do you want to share with the, 
the delegates of the Libertarian Party, what your views on this issue are and what motivated you? I used to be um, a criminal. I, I, yeah, I used to be a criminal from a little kid on up, stealing and robbing. Um, I went to prison in 91 for strong-arm robbery. Um, got out of jail, got introduced to drugs, selling cocaine, and went back to jail three months um, after being released from prison. I did beat that case, the drug case in a bench trial. Um, but when I but when I look at criminal justice reform, and I, I just watched this movie Just Mercy yesterday, and I was like crying. <laughs> I feel that the criminal justice, the mass incarceration, is another form of of slavery, like the Thirteenth Amendment. Abolish slavery unless you are a convicted felon or you're in prison, involuntary servitude. So the reason why most people, from my experience and who I grew up with, committed crime, because one, in the disenfranchised communities, saying, like, with drugs, that's what's inspiring for you to be a CEO to to accomplish that corporate ladder because that's what's around you. That's your, that's your environment. But two, poverty. So poverty turns people into criminals because it's a mindset of survival. So when I look at criminal justice reform, it's in conjunction with economic empowerment. So it's not just saying let's reform the criminal justice system and say, hey, you know, lesser sentences, which I do think, you know, everybody should be entitled to redemption, second chance, reconciliation. Um, and if there's not a, a, um, a victim in a crime, like the war on drugs, that's, that's a victimless crime for the most part, because I, I think there's an abusive part that deals with, you know, drug use, but that's a mental issue. You know, and even violence, I look at violence as a as a disease. So it, it the way we're the way we're criminalizing everything, the approach has to come different and which I don't think a lot of people know, but if they do know, the family courts have turned into criminal criminalization of a person who doesn't pay, you know, Family support um, Which I do believe there needs to be accountability But I think locking somebody up Is not the solution For that So criminal justice reform And the whole you know, holistic approach From mass incarceration um, Criminalizing You know If you park on the street And you don't pay the ticket Then the next thing you know you can get arrested Even with this coronavirus I read in you know, Virginia, it's a misdemeanor, class one misdemeanor, but it could be up to a year in jail and $2,500. Like, that's absurd to me. It's like, you know, um, but I do believe there needs to be accountability. So I'm not saying, you know, do away with the prisons, but I think they need to be more about what they initially started out to be, um, at least by the the, the title, the Department of Corrections, so it needs to be a correctional facility or a reformatory, bringing back, you know, parole, 
but not just with people who've never been locked up. I think you need parole needs to be people who have overcame, you know, the criminal life, but it also needs to be somebody in there, I mean, on the parole team that's never been a criminal. So you have a balance. Like you got to have a, a medium for both sides because it can't just be one side without, you know, another side saying nah. So that's why I think about criminal justice reform and all the money we're spending or, you know, the, the prisons are on the stock market. So if they're on the stock market, you've got to have a product, you know, so there, there's got to be a way to make that profit. And that's where these laws come in place, specifically that 1994 crime crime bill, which it started, you know, from my understanding in, in the 70s and then comes with Reagan and, you know, we don't have money to help the poor, but we have money to fight a war on drugs. And it's just all been wrong. This has been wrong. The approach has been wrong. And, and the the sense, crime bill that I might add was right. supported by both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. <laughs> Please yeah, continue. Definitely. As well as as well as Bernie Sanders, which Bernie explained that it gave women rights, and it was just things in there that if he didn't vote on it, um, or if he didn't vote a certain way, then certain things would have got stripped. Which I agree. What I feel like after that, if you know this is why you voted on something, then you come back to amend that later on. Like, just don't leave it there. That's that's a point. And with Hillary, even with Bill Clinton uh, apologizing, you know, he was in front of the NAACP apologizing, and then had the audacity in another meeting with Black Lives Matter when somebody spoke to him about that. He said, well, what are you guys doing in your own community? Because he doesn't get it. Like, he, he doesn't get it. And that's why I feel like running for president for me, I get it. Like, I've experienced it. And and by all means, you could talk to one of my, Anna Mitchell, she's a childhood friend from grade school. She says, Andy, you, you would have never thought he would have been the one that got into drugs and crime because he didn't fit that stereotype. He just didn't fit it. So, but I did get in it, and I get it. You know, I don't agree, you know, with every decision people make as criminals or as politicians, but until you live that, until you have that experience, you won't understand where the root is really coming from because you didn't experience it. You're just on the outside looking in. So that's how I feel. But apologies, especially – go ahead. I'm sorry, Neil. No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. Apologies from Hillary or or, or Bill Clinton – or even Biden, or any any one of them. You've been politicians since 1994. So at least by the year 2000, you would have saw, hmm, this ain't working out too well. Or even when you did find out it's not working out too well, look, Clinton, get rid of the three strikes law then. Set the captives free. Let the people come home. Because the three strikes law has destroyed families. And I'm not talking about the three strikes law because you're criminal that constantly keeps shooting people, robbing people. I'm talking about your third strike and you rob the pizza because you're poor, have a drug habit, and the real issue there was not that you were a criminal, but that you had it. So treat that, the addiction, which is the root cause and not the symptom, which is the crime. And you, it's 1994. What, we're 26 years later? Come on, man. <laughs> Fix it. Like, let's not just talk about fixing it because now you want to run for an election, Miss Hillary. This needs to be fixed. 
once it was brought to your attention, here we are 2020, and there still hasn't been nothing. Even Elizabeth Warren, I'll repeal this. Well, you, you've been a senator, a politician. You could have been then introduced a bill to repeal this. Why all of a sudden now? Like, come on, man. That's just garbage to me. So now I'm going to move on to the first question that I asked the rest of the candidates so far, um, and that is foreign policy. Um, these questions should be kind of considered under the guise of what would happen, you know, if you, Andy, were in the White House. Um, first, I want to give you an opportunity to answer generally uh, your position on United States foreign policy and, you know, just like about foreign policy in general. Then I'll give you a couple of specific items that I've been asking other people that regard to foreign policy. So go ahead. Well, what is your opinion on what you know role that you as the president would play in the United States as foreign policy? Well, one, I, I'm running as a human rights candidate, uh, as a general campaign, so I would definitely promote human rights from, from an all aspect. Like that is one of the number one things on, on the platform is, is just the respect of human rights. And second, you know, maintaining a balance of power between the other, you know, states and countries from us what our foreign policy is, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. But then we're going to go to national security. And so what I look at it is, again, I'm not in there. And I, for me, I've realized there's two sides to every single story, maybe three, the his side, their side, and the truth. And so when I look at national security, I want to know or have a better understanding is why are we at war with other people? Like, what is the purpose of the war? Because, one, we spend so much money on defense bills and, and our military, which I think that's necessary, but the amount of money that is spent on it, I think it's, you know, you got money for war but can't feed the poor. 140 million people living below the the poverty level based on William Barber and it's the Poor People's Campaign, and you see these numbers and you're saying, well, Back, I think it was December 2019, we just passed $781 billion military spending bill or bipartisan bill. They both agreed to it or something like, you know. So, again, I think with national security, we got to know what is a real security, what is the real threat. What, are, are we really the real threat or is it really, you know, an outside person? And I think that is better understood being in the position. Because without really knowing both sides, the whole facts, I can't speak on it, you know, intelligently enough. I can only assume, and I don't believe everything I hear in the media. And then our international trade, I believe we should have free markets open up, you know, our borders for that um, with with a certain sense of, of um, <clears throat> balance, you know, so – we're going to do international trade. It doesn't mean, hey, we're just going to ship everything. Everything is – anybody can do whatever. I think everything, there has to be a system set up that benefits people to stabilize our economy. So, And I believe in world peace 100%. That's what I feel about foreign policy. Wait, one more thing, one more thing. Sure. So the United States gives a lot of aid, um, especially to Israel. I, I read a lot about that, and they got – free college, all kinds of things they have, I think, in Israel. 
and by giving aid to other people, not giving aid to us here domestically, I think that's an issue. I would not say I'm just going to automatically end foreign aid. But what I would do is teach people how to be self-sufficient and be empowered so we can start reducing the amount of forward aid that's being done and start helping out us domestically. Because when we in the United States are free, like we're all free, and we taste that freedom and we live that freedom and we feel that freedom, I think the majority of us wouldn't have a problem helping out somebody else who needed as what I would call aid and assist. But we've never, at least since I've been understanding politics, I've never really seen that model. I've, I've heard people sing about it, you know, talk about it, or we're going over here to Africa to do this, or we're going over here to India. But at what point do we fix the problem? You know, it's like a equation, you know, two plus two equals four, solve it. And I think we're not, we're not looking at things as solving. We're just looking at things where well, it's always going to be this way. Let's just put a Band-Aid on it and it's, it's just for right now. No, if you empower people and teach them how to use the natural resources and they'll become self-sufficient. And what people don't have, that's where we have our free market and now we're offering aid and assist to balance out this world, which ties back into the world peace. Okay. So now, uh, obviously, you know, injected into everything in regards to our politics right now is a new situation that, you know, uh, it's also one that I think in particular the libertarian answers for are going to be difficult. Um, the COVID-19 coronavirus issue, we now have a pandemic that is essentially creating a circumstance where people's free choice might actually endanger other people. And our president, you know, whether or not he's handling Hercules seems to be that's a subject of controversy and depends on who you ask. Um, But the same thing I asked the other candidates, I will ask you. Now, this is assuming then that I give you two months from now, like back in time. You're the president. You know, you're just starting to get reports of this. You know, what does Andy Williams do as the president? Well, if it's two months back in time and I'm getting reports of it happen, happening, <clears throat> I automatically want to know, A, where did it come from? Can we figure that out? Which means I need to talk to uh, doctors, real medical doctors, scientists, people who would understand the disease, and B, can we come up with a solution before we start exposing this fear. So when I come out, which it wouldn't, like, as soon as I hear, I'm not going to be like, oh, let's go golfing. No, I'm going to be on it right away because of the threat that I feel could happen. This is assuming, you know, I have all the, the, the necessary facts to make the decision. And then I come out to tell the people, here's what's happening. Here's the solution. And if you have these symptoms, this is what you need to do. That's what I would do right away. I would, like, I would not wait about it. Um, I wouldn't make it, like, if it turns into a pandemic, it's not one that's out of control where now 
we have liberty-minded people, which is libertarians, looking to to a government to govern us and say, well, I'm going to shut your business down that I feel is not essential, but I can have other ones open. So you can't go to your job at the auto store because that's not essential. Go to the drive-thru at McDonald's, that's essential, and the person at McDonald's could have the flu. They could have the virus, and they're coughing over the food. So I, I just think, you know, there's certain people, again, when I feel like with the, the, the politicians, their payments is still fine. They're not facing, in my, again, I don't know, but I just feel like, you know, you make $174,000 a year. You're not faced with the same, you know, concerns somebody that's living check to check. Like, it's, it's different. So you, you, you have to have a whole holistic approach knowing this is what we're going to do. Because this stimulus package bill, which I haven't read it, that would have already been in place immediately once us talking. Like, we would have sat down with the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans and said, look, here's what we have. Here's what we need to do. We need to implement this now. So when I go out here to tell the people and you go out to tell your people, we're telling them with a solution, not with fear. So that's how I would have to handle it. That's, that's exactly how I would handle it. But I'd, I'd have to know that the facts are accurate and we have – solutions for the people so when this pandemic is over crime doesn't go up or suicide doesn't go up or all these other things that happen because i bought a foreclosure for 13 years and there was people that were committing suicide some even suicide murder because you take my whole life savings and now this is this whole situation that i can you know see a pattern that i don't i don't have nothing you know, one person's like, "Hey, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have the money to pay the rent. I can't, I cannot not go to work. What do I do?" And twelve hundred dollars is not going to help you. No, who that's going to help? If you're saying you're in lockdown for a month, three weeks, now maybe three weeks, I'd say maybe possibly. But then the 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 companies that lose business, are we giving them, you know, a stimulus package to, you know, maintain their their employees? You know, payroll. It's just again, you got to know all the facts, and I don't want to say I I know them all. I just know if I was in that position, I would be looking at a solution, proactive, not reactive, and I would assure the people when I talk that we are doing the best to have it under control. And here's what we have right now. Rest assured, I'd make sure all the hospitals are staffed with what they need. You know the 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 nurses make sure they have what they need. You know, and talk to my politicians that's in your community. Like you have a responsibility. You you're here to serve the people. The people are here to serve you. Get out there and go talk to the people in your district. Talk to the mayors over there. Get this all lined up. Get on the phone. You know, we got senators, two senators in each state, and 435 people in the house. Get, come on, and that's that's how we will control it. Now, to kind of elaborate on this question, because the issues that typically come up specifically with libertarians, but not just with libertarians, has to do with the, the question of the lockdown procedures that are recommended by all of the experts who are concerned about this pandemic rising up in um, cases to the point where it overwhelms our hospital systems, as we've seen in Italy um, and some of the countries that weren't prepared. 
And that puts a very difficult question, particularly for the libertarian candidates, you know, because it's a matter of personal rights. You know, if we get to a point where, you know, where people can infect one another, social distancing about staying within six feet of each other and all that. And the, the real question that's on a lot of people's minds is, is that if, is this something that we just encourage you know, uh, very heavily, or do we call in the government eventually to enforce this rule if people are not complying? And the reason why I ask that is not just to try to paint some kind of dystopian idea to it. We've already seen it that during spring break, a bunch of kids decided that they weren't going to let this virus screw up their spring break. So they filled up a beach and just all hung out with each other like nothing was going on. You know, and the reason that this paints a strange question, specifically the libertarians, is that now you're in a gray area where you're trying to figure out, you know, well, we don't want to hinder these people's civil rights, but at the same time, they're violating the non-aggression principle indirectly just by, you know, walking around and mingling about and passing this thing on. So, I mean, that's, that's really the question, the question. How involved would you as the president be in just trying to use the state to enforce this system that would need it, be needed to protect people? Or would you just rely instead on trying to be persuasive and getting people to voluntarily stay in their homes? So <clears throat> I think it, it goes back to I would understand, you know, the whole concept about this whole virus because I do not feel that grown-ups and then we did talk about the kids at the beach, but the grown-ups need to be told what they can and cannot do. Now, if this virus is super contagious and it's factually proven, then it would be in our best interest to keep our social distancing. However, if I tell somebody, listen, you need to keep social distancing, and if you don't keep social distancing, that you could die. And here's, you know, the facts behind that, and here's how you're going to die, because I think you, you totally have to be educated. Then if the person makes that choice and goes out there um, and doesn't, you know, keep the social distancing and they don't die, then there's accountability to that individual if it's found out that individual has this virus knowingly. And I, I feel like there's this test that could be, done home test kits, just like they got these home pregnancy tests, things that, again, would have been done from the from the start to say, hey, listen, you know, you're in this, you know, Willowbrook area or Darien area or Michigan area, Pontiac area, wherever area you're at, listen, you guys is all good. You passed it, you're good, you're straight. Don't go outside of this, though, because you don't want something else coming. Because I think with everything, there's a, a root cause of it. And you identify the root or you identify, you know, the the threat, contain that threat. So if, you know, like I said a few weeks ago, I could have had the coronavirus as sick as I was. You know, I've never been sick like that with the flu ever has it been so, so devastating. But I made it through. And I think, you know, there's people who could have been diagnosed with the coronavirus and overcame it. And then there's another group that's suspect you know, prone to probably dying because they're not healthy or their immune system or whatever it is. I mean, more from, from some of the things I've seen on social media, so I won't say it's factual, but it says more people die from the flu than it than it than they do from this coronavirus, you know. And I, 
I think there's been some a couple newspaper articles I read of somebody dying from the coronavirus that was 41, I think, in Louisiana or somewhere. Um, but we never, I've yet to really see real names and faces like, hey, this person or family, people speak out about, you know, my family has died or this. I'm not saying that they haven't. I'm just saying with such a, you know, huge pandemic, why don't we see more, you know? And here, again, we're in Illinois, and, yeah, we should do social distancing, the governor saying that, but then you're not offering a solution to balance it out. Like, here we are, libertarians. We need 25,000 valid signatures to get on the ballot. Started March 24th. We called Elections Commission, and they're saying, well, you got to talk to the General Assembly. Well, how is the General Assembly going to do anything? Because they won't come in because you can't have more than 10 people. So that's what I'm saying. It's like it's it's, it's one-sided. Like you, if you're going to come out, you got to be prepared to have that team work with the people on the issues of the people. It can't just be, you know, one-sided, you know. And that's and, and this is a huge issue I have for me. Um, when we say separate church and state, if church people want to go to church, let them go because that's their faith. But now the governor is saying, well, you can't go to church, and if you do, these going to be the penalties. Now the government is bigger than God? Like my faith, my spirituality? That's them taking it too far. That's, that's them went too, 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 too far for me. Because if all the people in the church believe that God is going to heal them and we're going to pray and, you know, the Bible says James five fourteen, and this is just for the believers. This is not for people who don't believe. And you're oppressing somebody else's right to practice their religion. Or if the Native Americans, um, the indigenous people say, we, we do our dances and we drink this water and we take this drink and we're going to be healed. Well, you know what? You can't meet with your family. You can't you can't do that. Like that's why I feel like that is where the government is is overstepping themselves with that. Okay. Uh now one of the other elements about this that kind of makes it difficult is that people will be in a situation where it is very difficult if not impossible for them to work depending on what specifically their job is. And that's where you come into these questions about what's going on in the government now with the, the stimulus packages. Uh, some of it is direct payments to citizens. Some of it is direct payments to certain uh, businesses, such as the airline industry, that are taking a huge hit right now because of the circumstances. Um, do you advocate you know, any kind of money being given to citizens to get them through this crisis? Or do you have a different solution for how to take care of people when they just can't work even if they want to? So right now, um, I would start with the poor people. Um, the 2009 bailout that happened to the banks under the Obama administration, that's my model. <laughs> I just wouldn't give it to the corporations. I would give it to the people. Because the people are who spend the money. The corporations are the ones that make the money off the people. So I'm sorry, Mr. Airline, if you're not getting a lot of flights right now. It's called entrepreneurship. This is how business goes. But to the people who now have limited food, no food, 
I mean, you, you again, you have 140 million people living below the poverty level. You ain't have no food. And now they can't work for the measly $7 an hour some people are making, up to 15 It's It's terrible. So I 100% would work with the citizens first. That's what it is. And then you have some people <clears throat> who would abuse the system, and you abuse the system right now because we don't know about you, because we got to really, you know, balance it out and try to help everybody. But if it's fraud, it comes back up that you were trying to get something that you didn't need, well, you're going to be held accountable because as libertarians, we believe in accountability, crimes being, you know, punished for fraud. And that if you're a poor person committing fraud, and I mean poor, <clears throat> but you can you can maintain like right now I would like I don't I mean two weeks ago three weeks ago I might have needed some money but I just did two paint jobs so hey I'm cool my rent gonna be paid next month you know somebody said hey Andy do you actually need this well it depends on when I'm getting off because if you tell me I'm getting off the seventh then I feel like I'm gonna be fine but if you're saying hey it's gonna be longer I'll let you know so I I, I again I feel like our priorities. Is is wrong The rich In the sense The rich Should be offering The poor Whatever they need Because their Bank account Is not going to You know Be hurt And I would I would ask them I, I would ask our country To come together Like we've done In different crises Like 9-11 It seemed like Everybody was together Hey we, we love everybody well, except, you know, for people who were discriminating against others. But for the most part, we came to c- together and it didn't matter. Like, we all want to help each other. And I think that should be the way we live all the time. But specifically now, we would definitely <clears throat> be looking out for the citizens. The lower class, you know, they need it. They've been needing it before this. <laughs> so that's that's my take. Now, the next segue is into the topic of healthcare, and this has been an issue that has been hotly debated, at least on the Democratic side of things, for quite some time, um, and obviously still important to listeners and to voters in general. Now, you know, it's a question that the libertarians. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. It depends on which branch of libertarianism you're <laughs> talking about, but. Um, as far as that, anyway, we discuss what are you as president feel that your role would be to ensure that everybody, regardless of their economic situation, would have access to health care? So, <clears throat> I don't want to say regardless of the economic situation. And, th- and this is why I think everybody should be entitled to health, to be healthy. That's, that's a human right that you're entitled to be healthy. But you have that choice. And what I don't want and I don't believe is fair is say you're middle class and pay for somebody who also is middle class but chooses to drink, drugs, smoke, and now you should be responsible to pay for their health care because they're making choices. It's, it's about the choices you make. So how there's a model called the Rosen Care, Harris Rosen, out of Florida. And he has 
<clears throat> healthcare clinic on his property. I mean, this is owned for his, he owns hotels. And it's company most part insured, beautiful. I think it's like $700 single, $2,500 yearly. I'm not saying that's the perfect model, but it is a good start because what they do is they have mammograms. Like you can go to the doctor while you're at work. They even got, you know, a bus system. I mean, not a bus system, a, a, a van transportation. But they promote healthy eating too, though. So it's not just, hey, you got this beautiful healthcare program, live your best life, do whatever you want to. So I think that's one component. And then there's another component about education in the healthcare. Because people don't know how to eat healthy. People don't know what, like, if you just don't know, you don't know. So it's garbage stuff that we're buying, things that we're doing, and it winds up costing more. And then there are other people who can zero, zero can't afford health care no matter what it was. Well, as a government, we need to aid in the system. But when you do a, a whole holistic approach and say, you know what, this works for the middle class, this works for the, you know, the, the wealthy who's like, we, we good, we don't need no health care, or we have our own or, or whatever, and we pay this amount for it. Then you have a balanced approach because I think what them in place is always trying to do is say, one size shoe fits all, and it doesn't. Each each demographic has a certain need, and that need needs to be met by that demographic. And that's what these, you know, representatives and senators should be understanding about their constituents. Like, who are you representing? That's their job. That's what, they're in, that's what you vote them for. So you, you're not going to have the same health care plan in, in, in the ghetto that you would have, you know, in Beverly Hills, because the, the needs are not the same. You see what I'm saying? Sure. And I think we don't we don't look at it like that. We just look at it. Everybody needs health care as a human right. It is based on your choice. You have the right to eat healthy. Nobody should govern you and tell you how that you need to eat. Which again, I feel like there's an education part in there too. And when I was growing up, I mean, I'm 47. We had health class. <laughs> What happened to that? I don't even know where they teach health class no more. They might. I don't know. I'm not saying they don't, but taught about healthy and safe sex and different things that I just feel like we've we've gotten away from that, you know. We, we've gotten away from that. And we, we need to get back to some basic, you know, living and saying, hey, yes, health care is a need for people, but do should the people just live and eat whatever they want to? And then say, hey, you pay for my health care? <laughs> Wrong. No, that's not fair. That's not fair to the people who are eating right, eating their carrots and broccoli. And, <laughs> you know, that's not fair. <laughs> well, that makes sense. So now we're going to segue on into um, education and college. Um, this is, again, a topic that's been coming up a lot in the recent presidential um, debates and such. And the topic basically just kind of revolves around the, uh, once again, the idea of, you know, how would you as president, what would your role be if, you know, when it, when it comes to the issue of trying to be sure that everybody, regardless of their economic situation, has access to a higher education? I'm not so sure a higher education is necessary for everybody. 
because when you look at um, the amount of what education costs, and I, th- I think his name is Robert Reek. He was a, the Secretary of Labor for Clinton, and he worked under the Nixon, and I can't think of his name. He's a short guy. But he said, I think in the 70s, Berkeley semester was like $700. Now it's like 15000 What What costs so much now? What What drove the cost up? So if the price of the higher education was reasonable from the inception, then, hey, we would be able to afford higher education. But the cost on it, somebody's driving that cost up. And so I feel like all these people are going to school to pursue these degrees in marketing and business administration. And, man, I promise you you can go to the library and get that book and read about it. And implement it because you look at people, uh, specifically the the hip hop community, the rappers, and Jay Z. Because it's I'm, I am inspired by this brother. He was, you know, in the hood, a drug dealer. Me too. And now he sits at the table. Warren Buffett, Bloomberg, the guy from the NFL. No college. Now I don't know how many people really go and follow Jay Z. But he tells you the books that he read. So if I want to be like Jay-Z, I'm going to read the book Jay-Z read. And I think that's where we're, we're getting away from that because the same for me, this is just Andy, the same book you're teaching out of, I can get that same book, read it and apply it. But I have a different you know, educational background understanding that was instilled at me as a young child with my mother, my stepmom. So she taught me understanding and how to, how to actually apply it as well as with my dad. Um, so I don't, I'm not so big on saying everybody needs, uh, you know, access to higher education for what is the job market going to, going to, you know, supply all this stuff that we're getting or what I would say is the trades because being a dentist, a lawyer and all that was a trade. You used to have apprentice, you know, and you would learn the trade, and you would learn under them. Like Kim Kardashian in California can work under a lawyer three years, 20 hours a week, and pass the bar. Now, that's 100% affordable because now you get the experience. And so when I look at the trades and seeing that we need sustainable slash affordable housing, clean energy, these things, granted, that could be affordable, and in fact, if you stay in the community with this trade school, because I have a part of my campaign is uh, um, vocational schools, and so if you stay in the community and you work there three, five years, then you don't got to pay this back, or it's, it's a reduced cost. Because I just don't, I'm, I'm not with big with all this free, free stuff, because that's what these some of the millennials. Just they want free, 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 and it has something to do with my generation trying to give my kids so much. Our generation needs to be accountable for that, um, and a lot of us are waking up, and now these kids are acting like brats. I don't want a handout. No, we didn't get no handout. Not all of us did. You know, the baby boomers and veterans didn't get no handout, and it's like each generation, they want more and more free stuff. Then how do you learn responsibility? If we keep giving you something, 
You don't value stuff that's given to you. You don't. Because you don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You can go to school and get tired of a class and say, I'm dropping out. Man, let the taxpayers pay it. I mean, that's not what they're saying, but that's what they're doing. So I think before we start saying access college for everybody, you need to know if you even need to go to college for this first. You need to know if this is something you want to do. And I'm not saying people should know 100% because, you know, careers change, things change. But for the most part, we should know. You know, I went to college only because I was fighting a foreclosure and I was trying to learn <laughs> how to <laughs> get the system. And <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered how much college I would have went to because I wasn't going to win the foreclosure case. It just wasn't going to happen. I helped over 200 people, worked, built four law firms. And it, I knew how to read a case. I knew Judge, um, oh, he passed away, Judge, I was out in New York. But he he talked about standing all the time. I think it's Judge Boykin. It's, I don't want to say that, but it, I, I used to know him because I would, you know, quote his stuff and read it. Um, and he wouldn't let people get away with just coming into to courts without standing. But that didn't work in other jurisdictions. Right? But it's the law. You know, and the banks got away with it because the judges allowed it. So the issue was with the judicial branch, not the education. Because I'm telling you, I spent 18 hours a day reading everywhere. I tried everything, everybody, everywhere that I could get my hands on understanding about this foreclosure crisis. And in the end, it was left up to the judge. So... Does it matter how much schooling I went to? No. That system has got to be, you know, reformed. And that's part of the criminal justice reform for me is is reforming the the judicial branch. A police accountability. No, I do not believe the majority of police officers are bad. But there are enough of them in departments in the disenfranchised communities where they don't live at that needs to have a different approach. And that's the balance. That comes with unity. It doesn't doesn't just come with one side, you know. And again, I'm not trying to go out, but I'm saying like when it comes to to this 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 college and this this education, man, we got to look at what we setting up these kids for failure. And we are. Now, if somebody loses their job and you know they can't afford college, but but it should be affordable from the beginning. Let's just start there. That's what we need to do. We need to find out why is the price cost so much. Why, you know, like I wanted to to go to law school, 2019. The non-accredited school online is forty thousand for three years. The accredited school online, one hundred and fifty-one thousand. Wow. What diff? What education am I getting? It's, it's just it's you know that's a hundred thousand dollars more. That's just ridiculous because we're 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 putting a name behind it. Say, well, you're going to this college, which is Syracuse. That's the one that was one hundred fifty-one thousand. Um, so it's going to cost this much. No brick and mortar. That's crazy. So now we move on to the next topic. Um, I almost hate to ask this one because I almost feel like it's somewhat of a red herring because they bring this up at every presidential election yet. For some reason, nothing ever gets really changed about it, but 
it is something important to voters, and that is the subject of abortion, the woman's right to choose, Roe versus Wade, um, and what you feel, if any, the role, role that you as president or the government at large would have in the issue of abortion. <laughs> One, I think we should not have a role in it um, other than from education. And so I believe a woman has a right to choose, and I think she should choose to make sure she if she's going to have sex, that that person she has sex with is either her husband or they have a condom. And so uh, there's a condom company called Strapped strapped Up, Keep It Strapped or something, um, out of Houston, Texas, and that's what I'm promoting. Safe sex, wear a condom. And the reason why I feel that way is because if we educate our young men, boys, on how to be men and how to respect themselves, respect their bodies, and we educate the young women how to respect themselves and respect respect their bodies. We're doing prevention. That's what we're doing. And it's like we don't teach prevention. We're just saying, I have the right to choose. Right, choose to have sex with somebody that's yours or choose to have sex with somebody that's wearing a condom. Because at the end of the day, there has to be some accountability for the choices and decisions we're making. And we can't we can't make an adult make certain decisions, but we can educate the children and show them the STDs and the fear that we would instill in them, you know, in health class. You can't get rid of gonorrhea, you know, can't get rid of syphilis. Like we, we don't talk about the prevention anymore. Everything is a reaction. And so I believe a woman should have her right to choose. And what she should choose is to find a man who can provide for her before she lays down with him, you know. And the whole issue about multiple relationships, and I'm very guilty of that from my past indiscretions of being an adulterer. We got to stop doing that. We got to start respecting our neighbors because some of the, the abortions is happening because we're trying to cover up something, you know. And in certain cases, people do have abortions because they've been molested or raped, and you can't make a woman go through that like how you didn't live that experience you know and then when they have these abortions i know from people that i've known personally they live with that and times people be crying like i wish i just you know so i think there there should be more preventive methods so we don't have to have as many abortions as opposed to saying yeah i'm gonna fight for roe versus wade no i'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure you have the right to choice because because it's your human right. And if you're doing something that's wrong, that's against the laws of nature and the creator, that's between you and your creator. I don't I don't have that right. Now, I do. Now, I will say this, and this is just from an educational purpose. I don't think people should be just having multiple abortions over and over again. You know, I think, that, again, there needs to be some type of accountability, which would go back to the healthcare part. You know, if I don't have to pay for no abortions because I get free health care, well, I'm just going to keep my legs and I'm going to do whatever I want to do, multiple people. Like, you know, come on, man. What is the educational part and the moral part and stuff like that? So I'm I'm not a – and I know the church is big on this, you know, uh, that's murder. But before it talked about murder, it talked about love your neighbor. So if you loved your neighbor – 
you want to get to know them first before you get to judging them? Because that's what I feel like is, you know, the, 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 one of the biggest pushes behind that. And then you come to find out some of them jokers were paying for abortions too. Like, come on, hypocrites, cut it out. So, and I'm was guilty. I, you know, participated in a couple of abortions when I was in my twenties. So, just what it was. That's what I did. And now, no, I, I, I mean, I can't have kids now. But if if I could, I, I would not. I would not have an abortion, no matter what I did. I'd, I'd own up and be accountable and accept responsibility. And if the woman <clears throat> didn't want it, I like what I'm gonna do. Make her have it. And if she did want it, and I didn't want it, then what, what choice do I have? You know, so I just feel like we just need to say, listen, we know there's abortions, people going to do them. What we want to do is try to prevent them. That That's that's my take as, as the president. Let's just try to prevent them, educate the people, and start there. Okay. Now, um, you're actually making really good time here. Uh, we're like only halfway through the time that we have allotted, and you've already gotten through most of them. So um, let's move on to the environment. And the environment question comes in kind of two pieces. Um, and then actually there were some aspects of foreign policy that I forgot to bring up that we will probably come back to later. But um, when it comes to the environment, we're talking about general environmental questions when it comes to, say, polluting you know, neighborhoods and such. And then we also talk in that aspect about global warming. So I would begin first about your general perspectives on environmentalism and then move on to global warming. So I think with the environment, not what I think, <clears throat> uh, times change. <clears throat> and most of the times change is because people change. So <clears throat> I think for the for the environment and, and, you know, creating a clean energy, that's opportunities for invention and green-collar jobs, um, which is part of my, you know, vocational school economic plan, um, is to br- bring green-collar jobs back. I mean, not bring them back, but to to instill that into our community. So if we have polluting and, you know, in the oceans and stuff like that, one, there's some accountability for the dumping. So, you know, hey, that's a job creation. Two, there's a way to clean up and recycle plastic. And Adidas has recycled plastic uh, out of the ocean and made shoes from them. There's a lot of other things we can make with plastic. Um, so that's how I feel about, you know, the the environment. And then it's the global warming. I, I think that because <clears throat> Al Gore had talked about it, and I think for me it takes more about getting into the experts to, to really to, to lay that down because I have a, Another guy, he's a historian, and he's saying, you know, the global warming is uh, it's exposing these pyramids that were that were here, and it's all part of God's plan. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, then you got another person say, well, we try to stop global warming by population control. I don't know. I I got to be honest with you. That's that's a question that I just feel like. You got to wait till you know both sides of the, of the whole facts. Um, and what I'm really looking at is, is for the environment is, you know, creating green collar jobs, clean energy. You know, we have all this innovation and, and inventors because um, we're 
part of part of my campaign is to pass the uh, Inventors' Right Act because a lot of people's patents are getting stolen, and the patent office is just favorable to the corporations and not the the layperson. Um, so so we're we're pushing that for innovation because there's a lot of great ideas. Um, some fifth graders in California that came up with some inventions for recyclable stuff and things like that. So, in fact, one of my friends, um, there's a book Van Jones wrote, The Green Collar Jobs, and it was about clean energy. In fact, I want to say it was Robert Kennedy wrote the foreword to it, and he said, to the next president. I read this. came out in 2008. I read it 2019. I was like, oh, he was writing to me. That's good. <laughs> you know, that's what you need to do. Um, and one of my friends, uh, David Ware, um, he has these wind tunnels on six acres for, you know, energy and stuff um, in Oklahoma. And I say that because that was in the book, you know, Green Collar Jobs. And they were saying, Mr. Van Jones was saying, you can go down to Texas and do this. And so, for again, like I said, when when I read something, then – that's what I'm going to try because it's giving me the instructions because, you know, one person writes the book, the other person implements it. One person, you know, gives the instruction. The other person has to implement it. And so I'm, I'm big on the implementation. So, so. okay. Um, well, I want to go back to foreign policy because I realized there was some, a uh, couple of things that I had forgotten to go over in, um, the first of which has to do with circumstances in which are, you know, where some presidents would have used our military in some fashion. Um, and the first of which would have been in the event of a major terrorist attack, like on the scale of nine 11, uh, how would you as president employ our military or would you to deal with such a situation in regards to we are being attacked by a foreign power in essentially like, you know, the circumstances that created the war on terror that we have now, what would be different for you, if anything? So I watched this documentary, A&E, on Osama bin Laden. And in that documentary, and I, I strongly say everybody watch it, it showed Hillary, Bushes and all them, and photos with Osama bin Laden. That only leads me to believe that the attack on the United States of America was personal. Meaning, based on this documentary, Osama bin Laden says, listen, I'm I'm a martyr. I'm going to rise up. I'm tired of you guys. You know, the United States of America um, coming over here, killing our people and our children. And uh, um, same way with the Vietnam War. Um, Vincent Harding talked about, you know, we're dying, and we we don't never hear both sides of the story. That's just really what I'm trying to get to. And so, I do 100%. If we had an all-out war in the United States, I am 100% going to deploy our military to secure our people. Like I'm not like. I, I don't want to, but that's what I would I would know hands down would do. Hopefully though, coming into the presidential, I am more keen on let's have 
years of peace, at least eight years with no wars. You know, troops, be home with your family. Yes, we're ready if we got to go. That's fine. But hopefully, you know, dealing with the foreign policy, we would have, you know, peace for wanting to change. Because I can't imagine people in anywhere constantly wanting to have battles and war constantly. Like, I, I always talk about I've, I've been through seven wars. And one of the wars I talk about is the undeclared gang war I was in. We don't see that in the streets, but it was it's an undeclared war. Like, these brothers and people is out here straight <laughs> killing each other. When I had got out the gangs and the, the negative part, the violence part, and I was teaching in these schools in Maywood, and the kids, like, got a 22, 25, and he's like, yo, I can't leave the house without it. It's like an all-out war out here. And I'm like, whoa, was it like that when I was out there? I, I, I mean, I lost, like, 28 people. I not, It was 28 murders in 96. I knew about 16 other people personally. Like, it was terrible in my hometown, Aurora. But that's like, oh, this is what's really going on. And so the other war I, I talk about is the war I had within me, my own mindset, the battle that was going on between my mind. So now that I have peace, Inside of my life, I look to establish that peace everywhere else. However, peaceful as I am, I'm not in the Dr. King philosophy, I'm going to turn the other cheek if you hit me. And I feel that same way about the United States of America. I'm down with peace. But if you cross that line and you come over here with that monkey bar, knowing that I'm Andy and I'm down with peace, let's work it out, sit at the table if you come over here with that garbage, we're going to give you garbage back. Not because I want to, but because you put me in a position I don't have another choice. So that's how I would do it. You know, like, I don't want to go to war. So just for the next eight years, we all can be cool, have some breathing time, you know, do a couple family vacations, you know, smoke a couple stogies, drink some whiskey or some brush and vodka, <laughs> whatever we got. Let's kick it for this eight years. Now, hopefully after the successes that come after will implement the same policies because this is 2020. It's a whole new decade, whole new thing coming out. Don't we want to just relax and chill for a minute? Ain't we just tired of all of this stuff going on? Like tired. And I know what that's like because that's what I came to in my life. I came to my life like, man, Andy, you always trying to lie about what you're going over here. You Like all oh, this is too much. It's, I just needed peace. And now I have that peace. You know, and that's that's the piece that I feel like if people knew this existed, oh, you'd want it. <laughs> you'd want it. And it, it comes from conquering the wars that's within us, the wars that's in our mind, you know. Like it's it's people right now because of this, this virus that's happening that is major turmoil going on in their mind. There's a brother right now I know for a fact that has gotten out of prison and didn't go back to selling drugs to get a job, to live his life. And now he's sitting there thinking, I don't have that job no more. I can go get this dope. I can, I can go get this gun. Like, that's the turmoil he's going on in right now because he can't, he can't get that peace. And then we offering a $1,200 check. No, that ain't going to help me. I got two kids, a wife, condo, 500 And now I'm back to, to ground zero. And see... If you've never been there, you can't relate to that. 
and I say that the same way. I've been in wars, you know, I've been in a shootout before, um, and I don't want that for nobody, you know. But I didn't. I wasn't the first one that shot. They shot me first. Shot at me in the window, and I shot back. I'm not proud of it, but that's just that's the war. And so I feel like the war. If if there's a war at the top in our country, that same war is going on at the bottom. So if the if the government is fighting amongst each other, which you can see in the Congress, they've been divided. <laughs> a, a Congress divided. Oh my gosh, it's been like even after Lincoln made his. His speech about a house divided. The house has been divided. That's why they need libertarian-minded individual that's coming in, trying to be the mediator, saying, listen, we're done with this war. You know, we need to feed the people that's poor, empower them, have peace with our, you know, foreign countries, and, and stop all this. Don't, don't you just want to go home and chill with your family for once? People probably don't even know what that's like. But hey. There definitely comes a point where people forget what it's like to be peaceful, that's for sure, After and when war yeah. has been such a part of your life for so long. So yeah. um, that's going to bring us to the war on drugs. Um, this is one of the bonus questions since you managed to answer so many of the others so quickly. Um, and your view on the war on drugs and the kind of encapsulate what generally gets discussed about this is you know, um, do we decriminalize? Do we keep some drugs illegal? If they are illegal, how do we pursue that issue? Um, you know, that's these are all the, the standard, like, backs and forths of the issue. And so you, especially having had experience with the criminal justice system, I think would have a unique perspective on this. So, you know, the floor is yours on the issue of the war on drugs. <laughs> um, I'm a hip-hop guy. Uh and um, Tupac would talk about, you know, they got a war on poverty so the police can bother me. And um, he would say, I ain't never do a crime. I didn't have to. <clears throat> so here's what I feel about the drugs. I think the cocaine, the natural purpose of poppy, the poppy, the plant, the natural resource of it is medicinal. And, in fact, I would probably think that we could um, – find a cure to the coronavirus in the poppy seed, poppy seed probably, because it's a natural resource. Um, same way with the mushrooms and so many of the other drugs. So decriminalizing the drugs, personal consumption, I would agree with in, in that sense. And then the war on drugs from the Nixon and Reagan era, how, how they kicked that off, because they couldn't relate. They didn't understand. So the the root cause of of the, the drug trade and all that was poverty. So I can solve that with economic empowerment and job creation with the vocational school. But when I say decriminalizing drugs, you are not finna be Scarface pushing kilos in the block talking about I decriminalize drugs. You can get that. That's bull. No, we're not doing that. Now, mm-hmm. if you get caught with your own personal consumption and it's yours for you, I'm cool with it. Because here's when I'm talking about decriminalizing drugs. Because when you come to the trade school, I'm going to teach you about cocaine, the poppy seeds. I'm going to teach you about the marijuana, the medicinal purposes, what it's actually used for, the mushrooms, how it helps somebody with post-traumatic stress disorder, how the, the marijuana has helped my neighbor Jack, who lives right down the hall, 
helped him um it it got rid of his brain tumor you know so there's there's positive in it and i think what we have done as as a historically which i don't think we learned so much from history we just keep going on and on without stopping for a minute and just saying whoa let me see what's happening cuz we keep pushing then we'll see that the war on drugs has really just been a war on the people because it's no difference when the hippies wanted to legalize marijuana. Now all of a sudden we in 2020 and 2019, we could have did this in 1964, 1965. Like we could have been and had this straight. Everybody would have been happy, you know, chilling, smoking their stuff, minding their own business. But when you oppress people from being able to do what they feel they want to do, and without, you know, having boundaries, like I, there needs to be boundaries, and people always rise up, and that's that's what is happening. We got to stop that. So I 100% believe in decriminalizing drugs, but not to go out there and have the next big time drug dealer, because there's accountability for that. Because the reason why it's accountability is because when you <clears throat> are pushing that much drugs into the community, you're destroying it. I know, because I used to push a half a kilo. And it was back to the whole new concept, growth and development, and that you're destroying your community. And before I was mature enough, I'm like, well, hell, they don't get it from me. They're going to get it from somebody. They might as well get it from me. Well, that was the wrong attitude. You're not going to get it from me. And if you got to get it from somebody else, cool, but it ain't going to be me. I'm not doing that. And so I think that's where the education purpose comes in. And I have yet, and this is this is me from – Watching all 45 presidents on um, the YouTube and just watching them, studying them, each each of the presidents, which ones had peace, you know, what Lyndon Johnson did, you know, the Welfare to Work Act, which was up under Clinton, that was positive in an area, so I'm not going to knock them for that. But seeing what worked and what didn't work. In fact, Jimmy Carter's my best president right now. Like, he's the most inspirational president. He's 94 years old, still serving. Like, what? Sit down, man, chill. But he can't. That's just who he is. We've got to learn from those who went before us. History, our ancestors can teach us so much. And one of the things they teach us is what didn't work. Something just didn't work. So we get a chance to to amend the Constitution in certain areas. You just can't do the Declaration of Independence. That, that they said you couldn't do that. But because um, I sought out the constitutional experts on this, asking, emails, I got proof of all the stuff I'm talking about. They said, nope, you can't amend that. Okay, cool. The war on drugs was was bad because they didn't have experience, understanding. And a lot of times people do drugs, which is alcohol, anything, for hope, to cope. That's what you do. My youngest, no, I got two younger brothers. The older one out of the two committed suicide 2018 on an opioid overdose. He couldn't cope with the fear of going back to prison. He couldn't cope. And he had a back problem. That's why he had the, the pill. So it wasn't like he was... You know, buying them on the streets had an addiction. No, he he tussled them every once in a while. He wasn't like strung out on them, but he 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 needed a way out, and that's what he did. 
because he was afraid to go to prison. Not He'd been to prison, so he wasn't afraid to go back to prison. He was afraid to go back to prison for something he didn't do, knowing how the system oppresses him. Knowing, that's why. He said, I'm not doing it. He got three kids. Three or four? No, three. Well, he's got four kids. I take that back because he did meet his his oldest son prior to him transitioning over because he had my nephew, Trey. He wasn't able to see him for years. We got two twins. I mean, a set of twins and a daughter and a son, four kids that, I'm, that I know of. Little, little brothers, he was a little fast out there. <laughs> um <laughs> But you know, I I I do believe in decriminalizing drugs, but I I just don't think you, you know, when people hear that, they oh, you just gonna make drugs all legal, for the natural resource of it. That's that's what, not for the illegal, illegal consumption or the the sales of it. Like, and and I I believe like they legalized marijuana in Chicago. And one of my friends, T.O. Hardiman, he said they need to have a peddler's license. I agree, I agree. Because that is a different frame of mindset for the lower class to profit. Because the lower class cannot get the license, the dispensaries, and the brick and mortars that somebody else can. And then in order for them to get that, it's these loops and obstacles because that's how that system runs. Because that's the profit that's made. They, They know how to profit off of the people. So then the same little brother on the street that's trying to push an ounce, he should have a pellet's license so then he can make his little hustle. Yeah, he's trying to push like a quarter kilo, quarter pound, half pound, couple pounds. Bro, you ain't peddling no more. You dealing. And I have the experience. That's what I was going with the 45 president. I have that experience. That's what I have. That Barack came up on the south side of Chicago. When you pass that, like, he didn't even need Congress to passed that bill. Department of uh, Justice or Treasury, whoever, they allowed him to do that bailout for the banks. You must have forgot your roots on the south side, bro. Because that didn't help us. And I fought foreclosures for 13 years. I was pissed. <laughs> I was on PBS talking about it. They came and interviewed me. Guy Lee and Maywood on PBS. And I said, man, what the hell? Barack, you ain't from the block. It's personal, right? I, I, and I, it's real. I, I really, when I see Barack, I'm going to ask him. He probably didn't know no better. Cool. That's why you need a libertarian, somebody with experience. <laughs> That's what I have. Real talk, I got the experience. And I am never would, I would never do that. No. That's like if, if, if my, that's like these small mom and pop businesses that can't afford what they're doing right. I mean, can't afford because the 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 government shutdown. Where's their bailout? Why ain't just let the Bank of America and all those other big companies, Deutsche Bank, which there's a documentary called Inside Job that really shows this was a deliberate thing because they just again it has something to do with Clinton and him loosening up the laws. But I don't want to talk about Clinton right now. Pissing me off. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I feel about decriminalizing drugs, you know. Not not to be, you know, big time drug dealers, but to use it for the natural resources, the medicinal purpose behind it. Because um, there's a lot of victimless crime in in that, you know. Person wants to use some 
drugs for their own self and you get caught with it, you ain't harming nobody. Yourself. And in fact, how about how about I help you instead of prosecuting you and get to some mental health help? Like the sheriff in King County, Ron Hain. He came in. He got a whole drug rehab center in the county jail helping the people. Dude, is I've never seen a sheriff in the world like him. I read about one that that did that was doing um, daddy daughter dance in the jail, but she's not my sheriff. He's the sheriff of the home home county I'm from, Kane County. So he's still considered my sheriff to me, and he's actually helping the people. So um, we basically come full circle through the majority of our uh, questions. So I wanted to give you a couple of extras. Some of them, well, one of them in particular, would kind of work towards the perspective that you have specifically being an African-American candidate. And you and I discussed in length specifically um, the issue of where the black vote goes. So you being an African-American presidential candidate are presented with an interesting situation. What is your message specifically to the black voter as to why they should consider you as opposed to, say, Joe Biden, who seems to be getting the majority of the black vote right now. So, as a presidential candidate, you know, what do you offer them that he does not? Well, one, um, I like to consider myself American-African first because I was born in America, and Africa is my root. So that's one. So I'm going to give them some education. Two, there's a thing. Um, Barack Obama was on... Tom Joyner's show, and he said he's not the first black president. I'm like, what is he talking about? And black is not a nationality. People use that word because it's been a label that's been given to, you know, pigmented pigmented skin, like us melanated individuals. So I say that to say it's still part of an educational purpose. I know I can't just be like, hey, you know, here's where that word even came from. Um, And it really doesn't identify who you are, because black is not, like, that's the color of the road or something. It's different. And I say that because when we think about white people, they can say, well, I'm German. I'm Irish. I'm Italian. And then if we say, well, I'm black, but you're not from Africa, so how are you really African? That's why I say I'm an American African. And then the third thing is, I don't care if it's Biden, Trump, Bernie, anyone. If you're not from the Generation X, I should get your vote because my generation has experienced majority of us, drugs, gangs, poverty, prison. And so all of them has overcame Nas, Jay-Z, KRS-One, the game. It's, I can go through all the hip-hop rappers and all of that. Like they all know about that from the Bronx, you know, with Pac. Uh, Shug Knight uh, Founded Death Row Records in prison now You know um, So many of us have been in the street life uh, Gangs and have turned our life around And now we're advocates Activists Vote for somebody that can relate to you That's got experience That's got a background check Track record of overcoming I'm an inventor now I owned a mortgage company 
You know, I fought in the front lines. I didn't just go say, let's start a bill and let me vote on it. That's all the work I did. No, I helped the people. Ground When people was getting evicted, I was showing up with moving trucks and friends to help these people. So it wasn't, let me just vote and that's it. Because, see, I operate out of a different system, a system that's of the people because I am the people. I'm never saying power to the people. Because the people already have the power. We already have it. We just keep giving it away. So I'm trying to empower this generation to say, listen, it's more of us in Generation X and the millennials than it is of the baby boomers and the veterans. And based on this coronavirus, the veterans, hey, we got to make sure they straight because that's the one that's the most at risk. So we got to, you know, and I have a friend, Tyrone Muhammad. He is... Man calling on seniors, helping them. Man, just and 20-some years in prison, out here serving, doing what I feel the church should be doing. And I'm not saying all churches is, is bad. But if you knew the scriptures the way I read the scriptures, then the church should be the one right now offering the hope. They should be God's voice out here. And that's another component I bring to this platform. I'm not just one of them, praise God, God loves you. No, I believe in the spirituality, the spirit of a living God that's inside of every person that breathes. And that spirit that's in every person, whether we believe it's God, science, or whatever, it still has a human component to it. So I'm running for a human right candidate because I have a human component to it. I have experience. My stepmom is white. I was raised in a very structured home. My dad has his own construction business, so he was partially the absentee father because he just did what those people did in the 70s and 80s. They worked. I've had a divorce. I got a Puerto Rican wife. I mean, blended family now. You come to run for Christmas, the table of brotherhood Dr. King talked about, I sit at it. I work with the Sikhs. Like, just my whole background is phenomenal. And that's the experience and the relatable part that I bring to this campaign that can't wait. It won't, it won't waver. I look for common sense solutions that either I've experienced or I'll reach out to the experts that have. Because I'm not finna be the politician running around here talking about, I know what to do with the coronavirus and stop all this. I'm going to get the experts in that know those who are working on the swine flu, you know, the uh, solution to that. That's what I would do. And say, hey, is this part of that? It's in the same family. What can we, you know, buy test, test over here? Or go to the church and say, hey, you guys said God heals. Get to healing. Tell us what you can do. All right. I would do. So, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the Libertarian delegates specifically on why they should choose you to be the nominee of the Libertarian Party? As a Libertarian, um, the fact that it, we we believe in freedom from oppression, and I think I can bring that message and put us on a platform that we've never, ever had before. Because I can relate right now. I love Jacob Hornberger. I this dude 
we we was at a debate in Peoria, and it, it just he was awesome, Mr. Mons, um, Adam Kokesh, like T- Ken Armstrong, uh, Miss Jo Jojo, Joanne, just the people that that I met, Mr. Mr. Kevin, I think his last name is Bivens, out of Oklahoma on the rodeo. There was something about everybody on that platform that day. Then the taxation is deaf man. We all believed in freedom. And the relationship I built with them and just talking to them, I feel as the candidate, you know, for the Libertarian Party, I'm going to bring so much exposure to our party with my simple message, do unto others you would do unto you or have them do unto you, as well as with my understanding of policy and and, and and the job description of the president and and not try to over promise and under deliver because you know we could promise a whole bunch of stuff but unless you have the blueprint that you can point to that is working a model then we're just saying something because we we never really worked on the job but if if any one of the the, the, the issues on the campaign trail I've more than likely lived it and can relate to that and. Say I didn't get the nomination. I'm still a libertarian because I still believe in freedom. And there's so many people out here that don't vote, that are not registered to vote. And you know why? Because they ain't never saw a reason to. And then I show up. Where did the dude come from? And he can hold his own. Man, I'm registering to vote. I'm joining the Libertarian Party. And now we rocking. Because those libertarians... They all have the same platform. They're not sitting up on the stage debating, fighting against each other like those Democrats and the Republicans do or have in the past. They don't do that. Right. Because we all believe in freedom from oppression, no matter whether we're trying to take it anarchy or we're just trying to be more liberal in the mediator stance, which, which, which is the way that I take. But we all want the same thing, freedom. And we're not going to bash another libertarian to try to get that freedom, although I've seen it a couple times happen, and I think that's terrible. But no, we we all have our own way. Vernon Supreme with his ponies, he has his own marketing way, and that's beautiful. I like that. But I'm the candidate that would appeal to all. All we gotta do is show my family picture. <laughs> See my wedding photo, boy. We had like everybody up there, the whole little rainbow up there in front. So hey. But I'm liberty-minded because I was born liberty. Um, I watched this movie, Harriet Tubman, the other day, and I was just inspired by her not being able to read but to hear from God and to believe in that spirit, you know, the spiritual, you know, like the ancestors. I believe in speaking to the ancestors. I can speak to anyone from Marvin Gaye, Tupac, to George Washington. All of them are ancestors. Well, I don't want to say I can speak to George Washington. I'll say <laughs> more of no, because I only say I can speak to the ones that I can hear their voice. The rest I can just read. But you know, J.F. Kennedy, you know, not what you can do for your what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I hear that, so I get to speak to them. I get to hear from them. That's what I have, and I'm I'm an avid reader and listener. I bring something to this Libertarian Party I don't think we've had. Um, and I don't want to say we never had it, because I, I, 
kid only joined in November. I didn't, you know, do a whole study of everybody, but I know not for this generation. Well, I want to thank you for being on. Um, the link to your campaign website is actually in the description. Um, and I appreciate you taking this time to, you know, give the voters an opportunity to get to know you. And it's been great to meet you. So um, I'll probably like to call you and talk to you briefly off the air. Did you, is there any other parting issues you wanted to say before we go? Freedom, liberty, and justice for all. Maximum freedom, liberty, government, www.lb.org. Join the Libertarian Party today. Make freedom your only issue. That's it. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening and uh, tuning in to V Radio. I have um, a next episode will actually be with another Libertarian Party candidate. Uh, his name is Arvin. And he will be on tomorrow. And uh, if you look back at my archives, you'll see that I've also interviewed a few of the other Libertarian candidates as well as one of the Green Party candidates. Again, it is my intention to try to bring on all of the Libertarian Party candidates at one point or another, host the debate in advance of the nomination process for the Libertarian Party as well as the Green Party and uh, the Constitution Party if they'll get back to me with the objective of eventually having a general election series of debates where what I hope to do is to ask at least some of the same questions that the media is going to ask Donald Trump and whoever the Democratic nominee is. So um, to go ahead and end this episode, I'm going to play a clip of the movie Network. Thanks for tuning in. And Andy, I'll call you in a few minutes. Okay, thanks, Neil. Yep. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now.